The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. All right, that's great. Yeah. Well, Rick said it was taking the body for a walk. Some number of people took walk. <laughs> Nobody walked back. Uh, if you do walk, which is okay, uh, and you want to get on an email list, the yellow pad's over there on the counter table thing. Um, we wanted to say a, f- a few more words about this topic we stumbled into uh, inadvertently about uh, empathy and boundaries and the rest of that and just say a few words about it and then dive into an experience. Okay? So, first, um, if you're at all interested, I direct you to... Maybe we could, Anybody know how to fix this so we don't see all that other stuff on the computer? Or we'll just keep seeing all this stuff. Anybody know how to fix this to make this go away? That would be great. Anyway, on our website, we have the Wise Brain Bulletin, which comes out monthly. Thank you very much, which is very cool. Um, It has an article in it called Two Wolves in the Heart, which is really about the evolution of cooperative altruism directed toward us and fearful aggression directed toward them and how that evolved in primates and humans. And it's a very cool article. Some of the, for me, neatest, latest science uh, is in that territory. Two wolves. Two wolves wolves in the heart. Yeah, it goes to the um, Native American saying, uh, uh, an elder woman, as I heard it, uh, grandmother was asked toward the end of her life, how she became so respected in the tribe, uh, how you know loved and respected. And she said, well, I know that uh, there are two wolves in my heart, one of love and one of hate, and everything depends on which one I feed each day. That's it right there, right? Which causes do we tend to? So, um, specifically, the question is, of course, how to be on the one hand empathically open and present without, on the other hand, being overrun. What's the sweet spot? And first thing about that is to recognize that it's possible. Think of people who really have a heart overflowing. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, Dalai Lama, Nelson Mandela, people like that, uh, many other people, known and unknown. Um, they seem to be able to be both very present with another person, yet very grounded over here. And in the way we're using the language, I would say that they have both a very stable sense of personhood over here without getting caught up in the selfing that can get activated when they're in relationship with another person. In other words, there's a person. There's no question there's a person. And the question is, does there need to be an I? In a moment, we'll take the body for a walk, and there's a person walking through the room, a person registering sense phenomena, person making little choices, go left to avoid bumping into another person or a chair, go right, etc. But there does there need to be a sense of personal identity, the cla- particularly affiliated with a classic autobiographical self. So that's the distinction between person and self. And there are a few ways in particular I'll just mention in passing to sustain a, a grounded sense of presence over here that really can open wide to what's over there. 
Uh, one is to have a stable quality of mindfulness. Just steadiness of mind enables us to be present with what's coming into us over there. A second thing is a kind of recognition and understanding um, in the equanimity uh, one of the Brahma Viharas, you know, metta, karuna, mudita, uh, upeka, um, loving kindness, uh, compassion, um, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, that the notion in equanimity is essentially the realization that other people are the causes and inheritors of their own karmas, not you. It's not indifference, like what have, you know, they caused their own problem. But it's a recognition that you're, you're not inheriting their life. It's their life that they're in the middle of right now. And frankly, a lot of the uh, forces and factors in their life are not caused even by them. They just happen to be coalescing over there, you know, transiting through that particular life stream. But it's not your life stream. And that one really helps. Third, uh, for me, it's kind of a personal visual. I feel like a, a oak tree with the wind whistling through or some kind of a tree, you know, grounded, rooted, strong, open to the anger or feeling or state of mind or grief of the other person flying through the leaves. But it's like a tree, you know, the wind blows through the leaves, but it stays rooted. And after the storm passes, it's kind of like the litany against fear and Dune, one of the top five sci-fi books of all time. And I have a plug for Dune. You know, it's the litany against fear. You know, fear is the mind killer. It's like a great storm, but when it passes through, you know, the person remains. Oh, one last thing. Love is very interesting. Love is very energizing and self-nourishing, isn't it? And being grounded in love really helps stabilize overhearedness um, to be able to stay with overthereness. Rick, and then we better go on. Okay, I was just looking at Wellwood's comment up there, and implicit in uh, his comment is the non-dual, which is the what? The non-dual uh-huh. mind or a non-dual experience of uh-huh. the other, and uh, you know I understand how easily we can get overwhelmed if we're not grounded in letting somebody else in. So I wondered if you could speak some about. What is it that allows us, at least in moments, to have this kind of non-dual oneness kind of experience with others? Of other, with others? With others, know? yeah. If it's all right, I would prefer to go after that toward the end. Because we're going to do this, this process and another one that will get more and more at that, if that's all right. Okay. That would be great. Okay. So if it's okay, in a minute I'm going to invite you, not yet, to stand up and take the body for a walk. And um, oh, oh, people really um, vary in their in their experience of this. And it's interesting if you how can I put it? If the I tries hard to not have an experience of I, that gets in the way of not having an experience of I. It's more like you kind of want to let I subside with this growing realization that there doesn't need to be uh, an I there. And to give you a little example of that, 
let's take a moment here to breathe. And I invite you to breathe in such a way that you give up breathing. In other words, notice the least bit of of self-producing breathing and drop it so that you're willing to not breathe and let your body breathe on its own. And play with that edge where you're really collapsing any willed effort, any agency to breathe until the, and just let the body breathe. So let's take about one minute to play with this. One way in is to go after the minimum necessary amount of breathing and just let the body breathe when it needs to. Okay. Were you able to have a sense of this interesting process of functions just going by themselves? And you can see the, 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 the increasing and the decreasing of the self-generatedness of breathing, for example. So we're going to do something kind of like that with walking and moving. Uh, what you can do is just kind of relax as you do this process and almost turn the record button on because when we come back, we'll talk about it. So, how about we dive in? All right, so if you like, come to a nice... Actually, we're not going to stand up yet. We're going to start by sitting. Um, and I'll ring the chimes when the exercise is over. And at a certain point, I'll invite you to just move around the room. You can go outside if you want to, but try to stay close. You can hear me, and you might want to stay in the room. Um, Okay, so relax your body and come into a sense of awareness of your body. Establishing the intention to let go, to let go of personal self. Breathing happening. Sounds coming and going. Without an owner. Feeling safe in this protected setting among good people. Safe enough to relax selfing.
continually letting go. Letting go of selfing with every exhalation. Relaxing control of your breathing, letting your body breathe on its own. Spacious awareness, pleasant. Awareness is not self. I is an object of awareness, not awareness itself. Awareness and contents of awareness ongoing just fine without needing I or mine. If you like, you can experiment with opening your eyes gently to explore vision occurring without needing a personality present to receive it. Notice how certain objects that meet the gaze do not activate self, whereas other objects do.
if you like as well, you can experiment with small movements without needing a personality, an eye, to move them. Perhaps a finger moving a little or a shoulder shrugging slightly. The body moving because it wants to, not because an eye is directing it. If there is moving, there are the sensations of moving, which do not need to be owned by an eye. Now, if you like, Experiment with gently standing up without needing an eye to guide the standing, though it's perfectly fine to stay seated. There is awareness standing there, but does there need to be a self there? If you like, you can explore moving around a little bit in your space, just kind of where you right are. And experiment with there not needing to be an owner or a director of those movements. Notice how often natural movements occur, stretching, reaching, actually without being guided by by an eye. Now, if you like, for the next five minutes, you can explore moving about, taking the body for a walk, and keep experimenting with uh, what increases or decreases the sense of self, and keep observing the sense of self arising and dispersing. And I'll ring the chimes when it's time to come back.
So as the last step in the meditation, staying in this meditation, bring to awareness compassion for self. Fill yourself, fill your, fill with compassion for self. This, this I, this me, this mind that's worked so hard over the years, this personality. Explore a space of compassion for a moment here for that self. a kindness toward that self-important self. All right, and then last, allowing a space of insight, seeing what insights arise in awareness about self. All right. So, whatever you experienced was fine, of course. Um, As we move more into discussion, notice what it's like to talk. Well, how much self is needed to talk? How much can there be more or less selfing to talk and listen? What are the possibilities there? For 40 years after his own awakening, the Buddha spoke eloquently. (laughs) He talked very well. Um, Still talk without needing a personal identity identified with the talking and the talker. So, what was that like for you? Well, his first motivation, interestingly enough, was to be silent. That's why he didn't want to talk. So, any comments? Yeah. Please, the mic. Great. I guess I noticed that the majority of the self-awareness for me uh, came in response to other people, uh, like someone was interesting or what were they doing and should I be doing that or how are they perceiving me and uh, what should I be doing in response to what they're thinking but beyond that it was pretty easy to let go of the I sense of things self really constellates in relationships just what you're saying in reaction to other people okay one reason probably one of the reasons for people to go into solitude seclusion uh, for practice Others? Across the room? Oh, how about, okay, across the room, then we'll bounce back to you. Um, I noticed that it it was very relaxing, and I really enjoyed it. And I want want to do this more. (laughs) I want to, uh, that's that's an egoic statement, but sorry. Um, Let's see, (laughs) how I talk about it. Also, I noticed that Um, I was aware, more aware of my true needs 
without having to think about it. That the body just took itself and gave itself what it needed. And so that was very useful for me, for, you know, for self-care. Thank you. Over here. So what I noticed was, and I don't know, this is my question, is this self? When I was walking, I noticed patterns. I noticed patterns of people. I noticed patterns of pillows. I noticed patterns, and I don't know if that's self or not. Just noticing patterns? Patterns. Sounds like just noticing. Okay. It's, it's, when, there's, it's when there's identification. Self is an activity, not an entity. Okay, so just noticing. We tend to think of it as an entity. Okay. But if relating to it as activity, you know, it's especially as... Um, um, identification okay, or possessing. I found it funny. The patterns amuse me. Is that self? Uh, what, what, well, amusement could occur without self. When you said amused me. There we go. Then, then yeah. you wonder, what is that? Yeah. Okay. And a lot of this, Rick, our, we have an admonition right here. Mostly get them to share their experience. Turn them back toward questions like, who are you? So <laughs> we're going to do that, especially. But interestingly, what is, you know, it's, a lot about this is to inquire into your own experience and see what it's made of. And one of the Buddha's great metaphors for self is a banana plant. You keep unwrapping it, there's no there there. It's like Oakland. Right? <laughs> you know, there's no center to it, as it were. Yeah. Okay. Um, I noticed that when I thought about looking at another person, just thinking about that brought me right into self. Uh-huh. So I thought, if I stand up, I'm going to avoid looking at anyone else. And then I'm going to protect this sensation. But that brought to mind... Um, um, I'd like to hear you comment on sort of hyper self-consciousness. I've sort of suffered with that all my life. Um, not so much now, which is what's allowing me to ask this question. Um, just barely. Um, I know it has negative judgment in it, and I'm, but I've always kind of wanted to know what, what is this I'm experiencing that's kind of flooding me and you know, restricting me. Can we table that for about 10 more minutes? Okay. But that's a wonderful question. And we'll, we'll get to it. How's that? All right. Other people? Maybe someone near you? Okay. So I noticed that my walking was really sloppy. Like I wasn't... What I was thinking is normally am I directing myself like raise your legs you know and I let go of that and it felt like I was kind of like just much more loose and but I don't think when I'm walking I'm thinking I need to lift my leg it's just it happens more automatically but I let go of that and that's why it was a little disconcerting in the beginning like I, like I need to make effort to walk quote unquote normally uh, 
just a detail. It's it's an interesting experiment. So one can heighten control through increasing selfing, which probably is one of its benefits in a reproductive advantage framework. One of the interesting things is to play with um, mental functions that seem initially to require selfing to occur and to, to get the value of them and see if you can do them without the selfing. For example, to experiment with being able to thread a, a, a needle or walk very carefully or very delicately manage a really nuanced conversation with your teenage daughter or your spouse, whatever, right? Without adding any necessary, anything more than the barest necessary rickness or merriness or whatever, whoeverness. Is that clear what I'm saying? Play with that. That's a really cool experimenting. Uh, okay. One of the quali- one of the qualities that I'm hearing is several questions is the difference between discernment and judging. Um, discernment as in I'm walking this way and judging as I shouldn't be doing you know, there, yeah, there is walking this way as a, you know, or I'm having trouble speaking in front of people and, hi- and hyper self-aware versus judging as in I should be walking this way or I should be you know like the, the question on recognizing patterns is that self that, and there's there's this quality that you have to be very careful in terms of discerning mind, this is what's arising, versus judging mind, this is what I want to make happen. Well, how, how about, is there self-identified with automatic patterning, or is it less than... I am doing just it's happening because you've trained this, yourself. Yeah, th- this is I think a really important thing. Most of the time in automatic patterning, when you are breathing, for example, when you've been breathing the last minute and a half, you've been totally unaware of it. So that you know you, it's not been part of your thing. Your your body's been breathing on its own and doing just fine. We bring to the meditation cushion, focus on your breath, pay attention to your breath. All of a sudden, self gets involved in control. You see the little trick that happens there? And the piece is to then flip it, turn around, and look at self, try to put control on something that is not controllable. Hey, hey, Fasito, right? See for yourself. What did you see for yourself? I think like there was more observation going on and not so much identifying with what was being observed or even naming it or labeling it. Um, and movements were very spontaneous rather than directed. Thank you. There's someone behind you. So for me, it was a, sort of a difficult exercise trying to figure out when the self is being activated and when it's not. But now in sort of listening to other people and thinking back at the experience, I've noticed that it... Um, you know, at first you're just, you know, you're moving, you're taking in whatever's going on, and so that happened. But then I realized, just like this gentleman said, that whenever there is sort of an interaction with another person, sort of I had to, I had to slow down my movement so that I wouldn't bump into somebody else. That interaction brought me again back into myself. And then I experienced it a couple of other times. Just again, there were certain, I would have a certain thought and then get caught up in it. 
Um, it, something reminded me of my mom and was thinking about my mom. And so I caught myself doing that. Whereas just a moment earlier, I was just kind of walking around. And then again, I experienced it when, you know, I heard the bell and I had to go back to sort of my chair. So I knew that I, I sort of identified with that particular chair, having to go back to it. And so in the actual experience of it, I didn't really know what was going on. I was just kind of walking around and stuff. But now thinking back and seeing when is it that I actually identified a particular self with what was going on, I noticed these three different sort of experiences. That's great. You know, noticing these distinctions. So interesting. And then suddenly what is the conventional notion of this solid, coherent, congealed identity becomes seen as compounded and variable and conditioned. And notice when it was useful, as in not bumping into somebody, and when it was useless, as is that really your chair? Yeah. You'll attach to that chair, and I'll bet everybody came back to the same chair. But is it your chair? Nah. Another person or two? Uh, what you, uh, what the senses uh, either react to, like, because this is a big one for me. Well, <laughs> obviously, that's why I'm here. Clinging or aversion. That would be self, right? When you get into those two opposites, right? Yeah, I hate that. Oh, there's another one. Um, you know, I was looking at the flowers, and I got, and I noticed I got stuck there. And that's a pattern that I have. You know, whenever I see something that's really beautiful, then I get stuck. So then I noticed that I was doing that. I noticed that I was getting stuck. I was, I was like. I guess I was like clinging to the, the visual image, which is something that I've done a lot. Clinging to beautiful imagery. That's on. So are, are you complete? Was there more? All right. Uh, again, see for yourself. Uh, aversion can be there. Disliking something. Or uh, grasping can be there. You know, greed and lust. Liking something a lot can be there without having self adhering to it or, Im- or embedded in it. Although it is in fact the case that much of the time, as soon as greed or hatred arise, self chases along behind it. It's like a little doggy <laughs> in a fire truck. <laughs> you know, just loves that. Just mm-hmm. Anyway, that's maybe a bad metaphor. I think actually <laughs> self is a little bit like, um, the Buddha uses this me- image a lot of fire. Fire that... And in the uh, physics of the time, it's so fascinating, they thought of the fire as eating the wood. And when it ran out of nutriment, the fire would extinguish, and extinguish is nirvana. It's to cool. That's the root of nirvana, nibbana nirvana. And so when, you, when we extinguish the, the food, the fuel, see, to me, self is, what is the fire that sits on top of aversion and, and greed. Greed and hatred. It's the, it's the fire that sits on top of that. And when that, that fuel is diminished, then there's no more flame that can sit there. Well, there was one, well, there's one other piece about that story, about it getting stuck on the flowers, that I think is kind of critically important for all of us to pay attention to uh, and to compare, I think, kind of the idea of 
the self not bumping into somebody walking through as just kind of a useful hypothesis for navigating a room full of other people and the sense of the story out uh, excuse me for bringing this out but the, the story of I always get attached to the pattern I am the kind of person who will get attached to or focus on flowers that's who I am and I think it's really important because I, I have those things too I am the kind of person who that's just as compounded that's just as, as created that's just as subject to cause and condition and just as possible to change if it proves to not be skillful. Sitting and looking at a bunch of beautiful flowers is actually a very skillful use of your time. Fills your eyes with beauty. I think that's a great idea. Uh, but there are other ways in which those same kind of stories that we tell ourselves about I am the kind of person, that we put that ownership in there, that's when it gets unskillful because then you lose the fluidity of meeting the experience of the moment and you begin to become excessively rigid in how you hit life. And things that are excessively rigid break. All right. So now, list makers that we are, we have, I think, eight different kinds of methods for yes, transcending self. So one more. Yes. Supports for self-release. So we're going to talk we're, through we're these. We're clearly in the Buddhist lineage. Yeah, lists really, lists. Lists upon lists. Embed, upon lists. Embedded lists. There you go. Hierarchical <laughs> embedded lists. Right. <laughs> got it. Okay. So we're going to go through these. And um, we want to do this a little. We're going to do this in chunk, 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 but with definite discussion and commentary. Okay. So first one. Okay. Understanding and conviction. Uh it is interesting that most of what you find in the Dharma about self is under this heading. Uh, a lot of what's, uh, what, what we're, what's going to be added to this uh, is more rooted in methods from Western psychology and neurology. The uh, Buddha and the Dharma is a lot about understanding. Uh, wise views, Rick said, is the first listed typically, noble eightfold element of the noble eightfold path. So. It's important to not underestimate the importance of forming a personal conviction based on reason and experience about something. So with that, uh, as a bit of a um, apology for doing this you know, part, I want to talk about this. So there's some basic ways to understand that the self doesn't really have its solidity that we normally attribute to it. Uh, one is to see that self changes. So I'm going to actually I'll do it in the order of the slide. So, um, okay, that's clear. So you see on the slide that according to the Buddha, um, self must be solid, unchanging, and in control. But actually, if you look at it, it's compounded, it's variable and transient, and it can't itself decide what it will think or feel in the moment. So it doesn't meet the basic conditions for existence. It's a useful fiction, but it's no more than that. So what are some of the things that support, in an experiential way, these sorts of understandings? One is to do a lot of what we've talked about, which is notice how the degree of self changes. It's a little bit like those um, lights going up and down on an amplifier in a stereo. You know, when the, whatever it is, the frequencies rise, the lights go up, then they come back down again. Signal strength rising on your airport base station, then going back down again. Self is the same way. It's variable. 
Notice how self gets added, like I was saying earlier, as a flame, or I thought sometimes think of it as an orchid, a beautiful orchid that's fundamentally nonetheless a parasite sitting on top of the underlying you know, activities of the person that's self-added uh, in the processing stream uh, to the contents of mind. Um, another thing is to regard thoughts of I as mental formations like any other thought. That's a really powerful one. In other words, to not privilege thoughts of self. The thing that happens, it's interesting to realize that the ego is just another subpersonality. Right? There's the inner child, the critic, the pusher, the woodsman, the hedonist, uh, your inner Republican, your inner Democrat. Then there's ego, there's I, just a subpersonality, like all the other subpersonalities. Isn't that an interesting way to look at it? It doesn't privilege it anymore. It's kind of like saying it pulls the this curtain back in the Wizard of Oz and says, you know, you're just another chump like all the other characters in the play upstairs. Okay. Thoughts of I are just a thought like any other thought. Um, a very interesting, powerful inquiry that I've done a fair amount is when uh, you're just kind of aware of what's going on in the mind, even literally aware of what seems to be the case out here, like pictures, imagery out here, sounds, and certainly for thoughts and desires and emotions, ask yourself, is there an owner here? And very often, I mean, you'll just see immediately, there's really no owner. There's, there's just what's there. There's just a thought there. There's just a body sensation there. There's really no owner there. And then if you just follow it up with the comment to yourself, there is no owner here, that's a very rapid way to deepen a very grounded sense of, huh, there's stuff flowing through, but there really is not an owner there. Okay. Uh, notice how many self functions don't real, how many seemingly self functions don't really need a self to operate, like we've talked about before. Walking across a room, walking carefully across a room, having a nuanced conversation, you know, with a family member. You don't really need uh, a lot of I to to do those. And actually, often, there's, there's a really cool phrase from a colleague friend of ours named Mark Leary at Duke who um, has this phrase, he calls it hypo-egoic processing. <laughs> hypo meaning less. That a lot of activities in life go better when there's not a lot of I present. People talk about peak performance patterns, flow, uh, moments in football or tennis where the I kind of falls away. If you want to mess somebody up, make them self-conscious. If you want to really ruin someone's performance, get them to be self-observing about how they're doing rather than just let it rip. Uh, okay. um, and then last, uh, notice how the field of awareness itself, which we've experienced a fair amount today, and you have as well in your own personal practice, the field of awareness itself doesn't have a strong sense of identity to it. This is something that gets very interesting when you said um, it was funny to me. And it is my experience that in very bare awareness, there is still often a subtle sense of subjectivity. And see for yourself what's true for you. It gets very interesting then, what is that subtle sense of a subject? It, it feels very impersonal, doesn't it? It's not like Rick is watching something, it's just consciousness, but it has a subtle quality to it that has a kind of sense of subject. I don't know what to make of that. Is that 
just the way it is, is that the soul travels from life to life to life, body to body to body? Is it an artifact of the meat? Just, you know, just doing that? Is it something transcendental looking through the eyes? You ever had the experience of that? You know, that's something. Um, don't know, but I want to acknowledge it. Often the sense of awareness itself does have that embedded subtle quality of a subject in it. What is that? Don't know. Just want to acknowledge that. But other than that bare, bare, bare sense, which sometimes seems absent, and there's just profoundly impersonal awareness, um, awareness arising, awareness perhaps arising simply as a function of the, of the body or arising partaking of something divine, who knows? But notice how bare it is and how little Rick, Mary, Richard, whomever is present there just in direct observation. And then increasingly explore what's it like to identify as that lived into the world. Okay. Comment, question? Okay. Just, yeah, please. Do you know what I mean? Lived as that? It's like awareness. It's really interesting to live as awareness. You know, without getting heady about it, because then suddenly you reify it and you make it a thing. It becomes an object of awareness. But just relaxing more and more is what's evident, as awareness living forward. I was thinking that maybe there's that subtle sense of uh, self, because the person hasn't totally let go, totally totally dropped. Yeah. It could well be true. People talk about that what they call the whiff of subjectivity. Um, you know, the ar- that's the last conceit to go, the conceit of self. You know, the arahant, only at the very last stage of enlightenment is any whiff of subjectivity gone. So, it's not gone yet. <laughs> For sure. Okay, Rick's going to talk about another way to support relaxing the sense of self. Oh. This is very cool. Did you see this quote here? This is part of understanding. That, of course, fuses the Tibetan and the Theravadan traditions on one slide. Another thing that, uh, clearly in terms of trying to diminish the sense of self, or actually, I should say, diminish our entrapment in the sense of self, um, because I think after the my, let's sort of prephrase here after the Buddha saw through, to, through through the depth of things he clearly operated in the world for 40 years so he, so that useful fiction of self as as you know, the Buddha walking through and educating and teaching was something that he used but was not attached to and I think that's probably a correct way of of interpreting what he did with it subsequently so, a way of diminishing our entrapment and our clinging to self, as we heard in a number of stories with people talking about what happened as they attempted to walk without self, um, and how the threat response or the, the quality of interacting with other people, the sort of nervousness, the anxiety, the judging mind would show up, are ways to 
deactivate the brain, deactivate the autonomic nervous system, that sympathetic adrenaline-charged part of the sympathetic side of the autonomic nervous system. So, in, in, to basically undermine that sense of greed and anger, uh, clinging and aversion that triggers the self, you can activate that parasympathetic side. Uh, there's a whole cut set of articles also on our widesbrain.org uh, website that really go through in great, great detail, which I won't do here, uh, ways of activating, but they're summarized here. Parasympathetic activation, full, uh, full breaths, especially the exhalation part of the breath. Inhalation is sympathetic. If you think about that, the, the image, for example, what happens when you're surprised? <gasps> you take a deep inhale. That's part of the sympathetic fright response. What happens when you relax? <sighs> it's a big, long exhalation. That's present every breath. So there's a neat way to use this. If you are sitting in meditation and you are too relaxed and you're falling asleep, only focus your, your breath attention on the inhale. That energizes you, brings you up. If you're too uptight, if the sense of self is too strong to bring it back to this subject, focus on the exhale. Let go, let go, let go. In fact, you know, one of the sort of summary aphorisms of all of Buddhist practice was let go. You know, so just concentrate on the exhale. Deep relaxation, really just sort of consciously letting go of all the internal tension. Mindfulness of the body of just being aware that all the things that are going on in the body is just the body, sensations coming and going. Yawning is a great way of letting go. It's actually a tension releaser. It happens to us spontaneously. Even better, in the Sangha, it's infectious. One of you starts yawning, all the rest of you are going to yawn. That's a great way as a, as a group. And you will see that kind of yawning and actually laughter behavior in, in, in comedy as a, as a response to the release of stress. Isn't that interesting? So it's a great way of getting, getting group identity, let going of sort of self-identity uh, uh, in, in the process. Meditation is a, is a beautiful way to you know, parasympathetically a, uh, activate the parasympathetic system. It's a relaxation technique. All of the instructions for meditation as you go in are all about letting go, relaxing, dropping tension, you know, just kind of getting into the breath and getting calm. And one of the ones you may not know about there, which is balancing the heart rate variability, is a technique called heart math, and you can look that up on Google. Uh, and it's a way of balancing inhalation and exhalation. Um, and basically, it's balancing your inhale and your exhale. Inhale to a four count, exhale to a four count. And just doing that repetitively over a series of minutes. And what will happen is that the pulse rate will slow down, the parasympathetic system will be activated, and you'll actually find that there's a real gentle, quiet calm that will show up as a way of, of activating the parasympathetic act, uh, system. And finally, the one that's not on the slide, but which is a real great one, um, is the one that it turns out that stimulating the lips in a particular way will stimulate the parasympathetic system. Now, some of that for infants is suckling. But since we all can't do that in, social, in, in, in the social environment, we'll do it, we'll do it the old-fashioned way, which is take, everybody get your finger out, Put it in front of your lip and 
Now, that one you can do on the cushion in the privacy of your home anywhere. I'm not sure I'd do it on the California train on the way to the city. But that actually, you know, in terms of its release, in terms of its laughter, in terms of just sort of this enjoyable, silly thing to do, takes the parasympathetic system and upregulates it. And those are ways of, to, in terms of using the fire analogy, of cooling the flame that, 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 that feeds self by just taking that adrenaline response and seeking safety so that it is not necessary to go into judging mind, that you can be more just in comfortable, equanimous presence with what's going on. So, fading of desire. Desire and craving, obviously, that's the, seed of, that's the, that's the root of dukkha. The fading of strong desire is the next step in uprooting greed and hatred. And obviously, in terms of talking through things, in, in eliminating delusion, which is the third source. So let's talk about the fading of desire. We've a little bit touched on this. Breaking the chain of... Breaking the chain of, yeah, of dependent origination. Um, in the chain of dependent origination, there's that place called contact, feeling, craving. You cannot, you can't help contact. You've got an alive nervous system. It's going to bump up against the universe. Uh, that being the case, contact is inevitable because the uh, the nervous system is genetically programmed to make the organism survive. A basic feeling tone, the Vedana is the Pali term for it, arises in terms of contact, positive, negative, or neutral. Positive, I want more. Negative, I want away. Neutral, bring on the next thing. There's, interestingly enough, Rick had talked a little bit earlier about paying attention to the neutral. There is in the neutral this very subtle, aversive quality of boredom You know that you really look at. You kind of say, hmm. It's like a reaction to the neutral. A reaction to the neutral. So, well, what is, what is equanimity? Equanimity, basically defined, is not reacting to one's reactions. Um... The reaction is inevitable, not telling that story, not doing that thing about half a second later of putting self onto what the tone is. That sound is loud. Oh, I hate obnoxious sounds. Stopping the I hate obnoxious sounds in a, la- in a loud train whistle coming through the window, for example, um, will, will, will allow you to drop and bring, and bring you into equanimity. That's just a sound. It arises, it passes, it goes away. There's a little bit of a top-down quality to equanimity. It's a frontal lobe control device over an emotional reaction, if you, th- if you think about it. Um, in neurology, when people have frontal lobe strokes, they begin to have behaviors that just sort of explode. It's called a pseudo-bulbar affect. They no longer have a rheostat that sort of dials up and dials down their emotional reactions to things. They have an on-off switch. You come in and say, you know, you don't look so nice today. What happens is a rage reaction on the, on the part. Or they start laughing and they, they laugh hysterically at something that is only minimally humorous to them. Or they cry at just the mere mention of something that's just a little bit unfortunate in their lives. And so it's, it's the, the on-off switch that happens. And so frontal lobe control is in a sense saying, okay, we don't need to exhibit all these behaviors. We don't need to elaborate this self. 
we can tone down our reactions to the basic reaction to what that stimulus is. Fulfillment of core needs, the fading of desire, focusing on the fact that most of your core needs for most of us are pretty much fulfilled. We're clothed. We pretty much have enough to eat. We're not starving. Uh, most of us are not in um, you know, you know, terrible pain much of the time. And, most, and even, even for those of us who have a great deal of discomfort or very difficult things to deal with, most of our lives are actually fairly decent. And that's an, that's an important thing to, to try to embody and to bring to mind uh, as a way of sort of deactivating desire for it to be otherwise. Reasonable goals, no addictions. In other words, you know, Nibbana is not probably going to be possible for us in the next 30 seconds. You know, that's a reasonable goal to say, maybe in this lifetime, if I, if I exert effort, that's possible. But not in the next 30 seconds, I don't think it's possible. Probably for Rick it's possible, but not me. <laughs> and, and at the base, <laughs> at the base of this for equanimity is this very profound acceptance of just what is. I'm born into this body. I'm born in this genetic endowment. I'm born as a 46 XY chromosome male. I'm going to be X number of inches high. I think in the following patterns. I've got the following talents, the following liabilities. And to some extent, that's what is. And I have to work to make the best of that. I still can work toward the goals of, of perfection. I can still hold them, but I need not flog myself with them. And I think that's the, the kind of thing of fading of desire and getting rid of. Okay, so far? I'll everybody just stand up for a second. We'll stretch here. Okay. Oh. Sit down again. Feel my two. Um, so, we're basically just going through... If you don't sit down, you have to stand in the whole next section. No. <laughs> we're really just talking about, again, skillful means, right? How to relax the sense of self. And um, I want to tell a little story from when I was on retreat over the summer at Spirit Rock. Uh, how many of you have ever been there to Spirit Rock? You, you know, that, okay, a gajillion animals, right? Deer and turkeys especially, so... I was walking up the um, uh, uh, road from the dining house to the dorms uh, one evening after dinner, and I saw there this group of about eight turkeys uh, right next to the, the road doing a really interesting thing. They were scratching at the leaves in the ground. And I thought, oh, how neat. How neat that I get to be so near these, these turkeys, essentially cute animals, how cool. And then, you know, this all happened in about five or ten seconds. Then there was the thought, what are they doing? And then I realized that they were methodically scratching up the, the leaf duff of the oak trees that had fallen right there and 
reaching down and then pecking at all the worms and bugs that were now exposed and eating them. And there was this very odd moment of the three views, the three players. You know, the human, the turkey, the worms, the bugs, the beetles. And to the human, it was Animal Planet. Kind of neat. It was the Discovery Channel, a spirit rock. To the turkeys, it was another day at the cafeteria. It was another day on the job, the food line. And to the bugs, it was a holocaust. Right? It was slaughter. And wow. And all are really, really true. All are contained in the totality of things. The, the allness of things. And in that awareness, a kind of ecological awareness, we have this growing sense of the whole picture, which has many parts to it. Yet, from the standpoint of any particular part, you know, there's, there are two truths. There's the truth of the part and there's the truth of the whole. But what's the truth that we usually don't really focus much on? It's the truth of the whole. And to have a growing emphasis on that truth, that side of the truth, that part of the whole truth, is really, really supports the sense of the, the, sense of the relaxation of self. So, for example... It's factually true, remarkably, that our bodies, I described earlier, is like a, are like a standing wave. Right now, today, about 98% of the atoms in your body were not here a year ago. Wild. All the, 98%, most of the atoms that form the molecules in your body have been, are, are in flow with the physical environment. It's a slow flow, just like we don't notice the hour hand moving on the watch, but it's still moving nonetheless. 98% transact, you know, like a transaction over time with the world. The body and the world are in effect one. Besides the parts of the body in a transactional flow with the world, the body obviously is compounded by world. You know, we depend on, for example, congealed sunlight in the form of plants that we and animals eat, and we eat the plants, and we eat the animals that eat the plants. You know, Basically, there's a kind of movement of energy from the sun, gets embedded in plant life, and then it poop, unpacks inside us when we eat it and unpack those molecules. It's like we're getting a dear Rick or Richard or Susan, whatever letter from the sun, and we're like opening it. You've got mail. And there's a little energy buzz. Like it's a transactional process. So body and world are one. Mind and body are one. The mind is embedded in the body. Therefore, the mind is embedded in the world. And you kind of can get a feeling of that, a felt sense of that through this reflection. Now, in that, there is, as I alluded to earlier, and I definitely felt this on my retreat, um, this growing sense, in a way, of unimportance. I think it was you who said, perhaps, earlier, that could it be that one of the resistances we have to meditation is this sense of dissolution of self, you know, which can be kind of scary. And um, so sometimes what we have is a sense that this part of the whole really isn't important. It's kind of striking to read history. 
to read um, about people who were incredibly important, you know, in Germany in the year th- in the 13th century that no one's ever heard of unless someone's who's writing a PhD about them, or um, just events come and go. I mean, who can remember all the presidents? Uh, you know, from the big picture perspective, what are people going to say about the current election cycle 50 years from now? Mostly kind of gone. You know, to kind of get that, and then your own your own life. It's just one, six billion, going to die pretty soon. You know, how do you relate to that? And um, there, I, I really was grappling with, wow, how do you live when you're not a self? And that's a question somebody asked earlier too. Really, it's a it's a real one. What's the point? Why not just do it? Why not just jump off the bridge? And I'll share with you a personal response to that. Um, kind of um, uh, really summarized and illustrated in a moment with a squirrel. So I was walking through the trail, and I, I have a, I'm a nature wilderness, rock climbing kind of guy. So I have a lot of feeling for wilderness. It's very, I'm always happy when I'm in, inside a forest. It's my squirrel nature, but anyway. And I, I was walking on the trail, and I suddenly saw this squirrel, only about five feet away from me, on this tree, and he just hung out with me for a little while. Uh, and, and squirrels are cool. They're pretty smart, hanging out. And I was just looking at that squirrel, this kind of trivial, unimportant part of things, on a tree that's unimportant, right, the whole thing. And it was there to wish the squirrel well. I wished that squirrel well. It didn't hurt that I was in a meta retreat, but anyway, saturated with loving kindness. I wish that squirrel well. I wish the tree well. You know, may squirrel, you find nuts. <laughs> you know, may your little squirrel pups be okay. Uh, you know, may you have some fun with your mate tonight. Whatever. Uh, may it be okay. Right? Would you not wish the squirrel well? You know, I wish the turkeys well. May you, may you find bugs. I wish the bugs well. May you get away from those turkeys. <laughs> It's a weird paradox, but we wish well. So there's a wishing well. May you be well. May you be well. And then there's kind of a realization, hey, why not may you be well too? Just like any other organism. This organism that you see in the mirror. Why not wish that organism well too? Like one would wish well to any other organism. And that for me brought it full circle. That was a way personally to integrate this really grounded sense of the allness of things and the totality really as what's true um, with a, a support for one's own individual life course. And it's interesting that, um, you know, in the Buddha's own process toward liberation, he, in his own journey as a young man, he basically inquired, you know, why, if I'm interested in unconditional, sublime happiness and peace, would I search, search for it in that which is conditioned? In other words, if I want permanent happiness, why would I search for it in impermanent conditions? The question is, what's reliable? And we often seek happiness in that which is unreliable because it's endlessly changing and incomplete and ultimately unsatisfactory. So that which is unreliable is not a valid source of happiness. What's interesting is that the allness of it all, the whole, right, itself never changes because the allness is always the allness. 
the totality is always everything it all is is always everything always is you know and that is a great place to take our fundamental refuge that's a reliable source of happiness a kind of felt sense of and identification with the allness of things it's not a reliable source of happiness to identify with any part my car my kid my body it's like the cookies that the three-year-olds eat all gone sooner or later right it's all going to go but the allness itself and awareness particularly transcendental awareness seems like a reliable basis for happiness and it's a great question what are the other reliable bases of true happiness like good intentions you know wishing well seems like a reliable basis of happiness including wishing well for this particular organism the org- we, the organism that you are as, as well so you, so you might want to ask yourself what are the reliable sources of happiness for you and how can you integrate a, a, a clarity about the the allness of everything and the irrelevance of any part with wishing this part well that you see in the mirror any comment question so far this the self is the only self I have um, and it's scary to think of losing self and then I think about hearing that it's 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 good to wish yourself peace and wish yourself well and what's the difference between the organism you refer to wishing this meta to and self it's a great question and um, uh, the question is of course what do we mean by self and that's why I said earlier for me it's a useful distinction between person and and I um, this, the eye is very elusive so it helps to look for it when it's most there and for me it's most there when it feels threatened like when it's being disrespected or devalued nor, you know a narcissistic wound as it were right? is that not the case like how dare you treat me that way or something you know, there's like our vanity is affronted, maybe, um, and so that's an example of that's a lot for me. The kind of the quintessence of I, or flip the other way, I gotta have it. You know, I gotta have this thing, whatever it is. You know, including it around addictive stuff, gotta have it. Uh, I just think that 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 is constructed. That's added to. It's kind of an unnecessary addition to things. But awareness, a body, uh, qualities, dispositional tendencies, those don't need an I, and those can be wished well to. Does that... Yeah. Yeah. You know, it... um, One of the... One of the other things you want to... One more thing was that... It's, it's this, and it goes to the previous slide, actually, about core needs. And in some ways, we, have a, we really do have a core need, psychologically, to have a sense of self-worth. Okay? And so then the question gets very interesting, psychologically, how you work with that, and how you work with the, the sense of inadequacy and worthlessness and shame. 
that's so endemic in Western cultures. Really startled the Dalai Lama. You know the famous story where he was just really he couldn't get it in translation that someone was talking about low self-worth. Right? What do you do with that? And I think that as a raft, it's useful to internalize a sense of worth, and then use, but but don't cling to it ultimately. And use the internalization of it as a way to release selfing through and, and to take it in initially through really taking in the good, Rick and I talk about, of experiences of, of value and worth. But on the basis of those being increasingly taken in, relax clinging to approval, validation, uh, adulation, and all kinds of narcissistic supplies. And as an intermediate step, to wish, um, you know, we all have, I think, a sense of this very sweet inner person that does have a quality of identity to it, a kind of personality quality to it, often grounded in our childhood. Do you know what I mean? There's a kind of sweetness there. We, I think it's good to wish that one well. And yet, ultimately, understand that even that one, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. You know, that's this recurrent refrain in the Dharma. It's like in Christianity, the recurrent refrain is, you know, love thy God and thy neighbor as thyself. It's this, if you're going to remember one thing, it's that one. In Buddhism, it's nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. You know, including that really precious sense. It's sweet. And I think loving it and valuing it and, and wishing it well is a, is a raft. But ultimately, let's be clear, uh, it's to be dropped when you get to the other side. Well, this is a different tether. Different tether. Do you have time for another question? Yeah, let me, let me I have something to <clears throat> add on to that, and then, then, then we'll take your question. Uh, one of the other things that can be taken, in addition to uh, the allness of everything, is, and I'm going to open up a can of worms, but I'm going to do a very simple thing here. The direction of time. Time in our universe as a human being only moves in one direction from past to future. And what that means is that each individual moment you're making decisions that have consequences in the next. You will be reincarnating in the next moment. So the whole piece about wishing well for this organism, this standing wave of energy moving through time that I label as Rick Mendius, is that it is skillful means to essentially create positive karma. That by doing that, by wishing me well, I place myself in an emotional and psychological position to act with compassion, with understanding, with gentleness, and, and, and with ease and skillfulness in the next moment with every other being that I encounter, whether it's the bugs, the turkeys, the squirrel, myself, my spouse, my children, the people I work with, patients that will come to see me on Monday morning. And to some extent, you have to take that partially on faith and partially on evidence that having observed yourself acting in various states over time, including subtle ways that this played out as you were walking through the room in the exercise this afternoon, you can see how that works. That if I am walking through the room and I have, and I am, have dropped self and I'm going 
from a place of compassion and warmth, then I am avoiding bumping into people in the room out of consideration for their comfort. If I am walking through with a sense of self and somewhat threat-based, then I am walking through the room not wanting to bump into anybody or aren't they intruding on my space. And we can watch that happen. And probably most of us have seen that happen as we've literally, if we've done walking meditation before with other people. We've had both of those different kinds of reactions, which is skillful and which is not. Having observed that and having observed the skillful quality of that, you can say, oh, Wishing myself well is basically very skillful means to move myself further down the path so that I engender less suffering in others and in myself. And then we'll move on after this question. Having quickly skipped through karma on the way too. (laughs) Um, In light of all this, I'm wondering how to think about things that are celebrated in our culture like uh, personal ambition, wanting to achieve mastery in a career, falling in love, things that seem to sort of require a sense of self and identity. Mm. Okay. Well, you have a PhD and an MD uh, who clearly spent a great deal of time doing mastery all the way through a good portion of our our younger lives. There are, I think, I think it comes down to it, the, the short answer on this is that looking at yourself with as much clarity and compassion as possible, noting what talents your heart-mind, and I'll put both of those together in the Tibetan way of, of viewing things, what talents and abilities your heart-mind has at whatever age you are, 20, 40, 70, you then can say, in the sense of wishing oneself well, may my talents and abilities be manifest in the world. This is setting an intention. May they be manifest in the world in the way that they may be most beneficial to myself and all other beings. Holding it that way, you're not carving out uh, master of the universe, credit default swap em- empires that are going to lead to the downfall of Western financial civilization. <laughs> to put it in immediate terms, you are much more likely to engage in in, in compa- compassionate professional practices, even if it even if it involves competition with others. You know. Uh, I will do my best, you do your best, and the world and the world and the universe will decide how things get rewarded. You let go of the reward. You engage in the behavior, you engage in the practice, you engage in the acquisition of skill and competency and, and care and the manifestations of how your brain works in the world. But you let go of results. That's part of the real technique in this is to... To give your all and to let the universe decide what the result is. It takes an incredible amount of courage to do that. I can absolutely tell you, in my 20s and 30s, I didn't have it. I was a competitive whatever. And you know, in, in, in that regard, I probably was not as skillful in terms of how I worked in the world as I could have been. Was I an evil person? No. But you know, I could have been more skillful along the way. But that's how I would hold that. Uh, 
um, it kind of is a follow-on to your to your question or comment, really. Um, one way to address this question of, uh, you know, um, wholesome wanting, really, it's interesting. Uh, unwholesome wanting is thirst, tanha, whereas wholesome wanting is chanda, which is wholesome desire. There are wholesome desires. And Buddha has this great phrase, the happiness um, visible in this present life. And there's a place for that, really, a place for that. Uh, he did not tell people they should become renunciates. Now, he did believe that becoming a, a monastic was uh, the best uh, way to achieve ultimate liberation, although he did not consider that it was impossible for householders. He just felt it was harder. And there's this wonderful phrase, you know, household life is dusty. This has all the stuff, you know, of household life, uh, including the dirty diapers. Uh, but he didn't speak against that. On the other hand, there is there is a kind of point, which is, you know, what really is important to you. Um, I, you know, Gil here uh, had a wonderful conversation with me many years ago. I asked him, well, what can I do as a householder to accelerate my practice? And uh, he said, speaking from great experience himself, uh, it's like being an Olympic athlete or someone who wants to learn how to run a marathon. You just start to have to make choices. What's important to you? Where do you put your effort? And what are the what are the causes you tend to? And then what do you basically renounce as a lesser pleasure for the sake of a greater one? And I think that is a perspective there. The other thing is in the context of wishing well for yourself, or wishing well for that organism that's got your name tag on it, um, is to wish for that however high it rises in life is not flattened by your own limitations, by your own self-limitations. In other words, however high you soar in love, in play, in social justice, in your career, whatever, it's not based on uh, a failure of nerve, lack of effort, playing small, self-doubt. Whatever, whatever you know, conditions limit the ascendance of that trajectory, they're not internally generated. That's a great kindness to the organism that has this name tag on it. And a great kindness to the rest of the planet since yeah. you will be fully giving your talents to it. Yeah. And then also along those lines, which was in the slide, a great way to address that is a kind of giving over to one's uh, to the to the best purposes you know the best qualities of the organism and the highest callings that one senses being clear always about the potential of getting vain and you know grandiose about it you're continually trying to pay attention to that to sift that out but a willingness to just kind of give over to that those purposes there's some wonderful quotes from like George Bernard Shaw and Teddy Roosevelt about how the great thing in life is being used for a higher purpose, a great purpose, used up. You know, uh, football players talk about um, not leaving anything on the field. In other words, not saving it, anything up for the last battle, but it's all left out there on the field. Uh, so that's good. And that, those are experiences of kind of relaxing a sense of self. It's as if you're being carried along by this river. The river is doing it. The river is sweeping you along. The river of your own talents. The river of your own values and, and your own personal inclinations. And that's what's sweeping you along. 
Another way in terms of relaxing agency is doing things like we did with the breath, receiving the breath, rather than going out to get it in meditation. That's an interesting one right there. A sense of receiving, you know, being the receptive field of awareness upon which things register. It's kind of a way to shift the sense of meditation that supports this relaxation of agency. Uh, giving oneself over to precepts and practices. I think sometimes the, what happens is we, we make a decision uh, and then we give ourselves over to that decision. We make a good decision. We, we give over to precepts. You know, don't steal, don't abuse, don't harm through sexuality. You know, don't become intoxicated, etc. Uh, and then last, devotion. It's interesting how much we don't really do devotional practices in uh, Western Buddhism, uh, particularly the Theravadan line. You know, this is a Theravadan, so a spirit rock, kind of li- root lineage. Um, and it's interesting to find more of that kind of juicy thing, you know, uh, of devotional practice, you know, devotion to the breath, devotion to a teacher, devotion to a center, devotion to a cause. You know, that's a way to relax the sense of agency and meanness, uh, to be given over to a great love. Now Rick's going to talk about the next one. And then very soon he's going to take us through, oh yeah, Upandita. We're going to, there we go. Letting go, letting go of agency. So undermining the sense of self, which in terms of what Rick was talking about, may we not be uh, held back by our own sense of limitation. Letting go of that sense of self in some ways allows you to you know, manifest your talents and abilities oh, more, full, more fully. And many Buddhist practices do this. Um, you can treat oneself as unimportant or existing as for the benefit of others. Examples include, for example, the conclusion of many meditations. You'll hear somebody dedicate the merit of that practice. Whatever been as, has been accumulated by, by us in today's meditation exercise may it be to the benefit of all beings and all realms. Um, karma yoga, which you're unattached to the personal fruits of your efforts. It's basically you're there to work and to do it and to leave the benefit to, the, to others. Tonglen practices in Tibetan Buddhism, uh, a metaphor that Rick used earlier about being the oak tree and having things move through your branches back and forth is uh, sort of a, a physical metaphorical example of what Tonglen is about. One lets the suffering of others come to you as a compassionate being, but it moves through you and back into the universe. Excuse me, Rick, we're missing recording. Oh, you don't have your, uh, oh, have Thank you. Um, the Tonglen practice in Tibetan Buddhism, where one allows basically the suffering of others who are present in front of you, or maybe you're calling up their, their elsewhere and you're calling up their images uh, in his uh, compassion meditation. You take in their suffering, allow it to pass through you into the universe, and then allow the healing from the universe to pass through you back out to the individuals that you are either visualizing in front of you or who actually physically are there. Um, uh, orientation to the uh, vows of poverty, other renunciations as way of just undermining that sense of self, that that sense of of ownership. Embracing narcissistic injuries as opportunities for practice. Children are great ways to work with this. (laughs) 
as Rick and I have both talked to each other about over the last couple of years, uh, they they don't they don't particularly see you as you know as some being. So they they get to they are as is often said the grandparents' revenge, um, and they get they get to tell to tell you all about you know how you may have just given over to them your entire retirement fund because they cost a quarter of a million apiece, um, and they're saying thank you, give me more. Yeah. Uh, without any any kind of sense, or it may not even thank you. It says, uh, call up, you know, I need another 200 bucks. May you please, and will you deliver it by 630? Of course, it's worse when they no longer want anything from you. Yeah, and right. Better to be wanted than not wanted, not wanted at all. Um, but there are also all kinds of other narcissistic injuries. And looking at those rather as an ouch, oh, me, ah, as, oh, look at this. Look at this fantasized injury that I've just sustained and how am I adding to it? And how can I use this to just say, so what was that about? Asking the question about, so who was injured? This is not, this is, uh, this is an opinion that sits out there. It's not something that's actually intrinsic due to me. Even if you, if your attention, uh, your at in, at intentions in the action were completely opposite to what's being thrown at you, uh, it's an opportunity to release. I mean, praise, blame, gain, loss. It's all impermanent. It's all going to go away. In daily life, one can deliberately orient to that experience flowing by as not me, not mine. Not me, not mine. The stuff, you know, uh, I'm driving down the road. It's not me, it's not mine. I'm sitting in a meeting. It's not me, it's not mine. Um, I'm having a delightful dinner. It's not my dinner. It's not me having the experience. It's a good experience occurring. Maybe perhaps even taking the intention to not use the words self, myself, I, me, mine, any more than are absolutely necessary for conventional conversation. (coughs) This can lead to some very interesting things. As opposed to I am angry, you can say, Anger appears to be arising. That's a, that's a naming of the emotion. It's not localizing it any one being. It's saying in the interaction, this emotion is showing up that I am perceiving. See, I used to even use that as a convention, but I feel this emotion arising. This emotion shows up. As soon as you get out of the I feel, as soon as you drop the pronoun, as somebody talked about earlier today, uh, about you know, the pronouns and the use of the pronouns and how that coalesces. If you drop the pronoun and just say anger is arising, all of a sudden, see how dispassionate that is. All of a sudden, it's something to be investigated as opposed to something accusatory. Insight meditation deconstructs the self, particularly if you get really, really focused and concentrated. Charnel ground meditations, for example, uh, are another way to do that. or you can imagine or experience in vivid detail the ultimate dissolution of the body. Those of you that work in, in healthcare professions, nurses and physicians, get to do basically real-life, day-to-day, charnel ground kinds of stuff. Uh, charnel ground meditation for me, a sort of subtle one, was that I have been noticing over the 30 years in practice, it's a neurology practice, it's largely people who have you know, Parkinson's and strokes and dementia, and I have just been noticing their birth dates because I have to dictate it on every chart. So they are getting uncomfortably close to mine. 
In fact, they've started to pass mine by. And it, so, it's, so it's noticing that here's, here's me thinking of myself as this young whippersnapper with all these people who've got old age diseases who were born after I was. And so it, it, it's an immediate, you know, not me, not mine, no self here, kind of, kind of drumbeat. I was just flashing my kids saying things like, you know, Dad, back in the 60s, you know, when George Washington was president? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When Franklin Delano Roosevelt got on, the, uh, got on the Internet, right? <laughs> That's a different quote. <laughs> and finally, um, the bottom of this slide says A Year to Live. There's a book by Stephen Levine called A Year to Live, which was actually he decided at one particular time that he was going to declare a date one year from now. Okay, uh, October 4th, 2009 is my death date. And I'm going to live this year as though that were my death date. And the, the, the substrate for that is that there are two very important days for you every year. There's your birth date, February 9th, 1950. So every February 9th, I get to celebrate my embodiment in this planet. There's a death date. I don't happen to know it, but I pass it by every year. Now, is today that day? Okay. October 4th, year to be named later. The day I die. You can use that as a, as a constant meditation to realize this is an impermanent organism. It's not here for very long. And that essentially fuels, you know, there's a story that's told about the, the, about the Buddha holding, holding up a flower as, as, as basically his entire Dharma talk for the day. And a number of people becoming enlightened as a consequence of that. Um, and that story actually speaks to the fact this flower is gorgeous. It's here for right now. Wilson dies, and in the heat of India, might not make it till sundown before it's destroyed. But that moment is perfect and beautiful. And that's, that's I think, is the other piece about this, is that this desire for permanence is something we need to let go of. We need to, have, we need to be realizing that it is this moment right now. And that is all you have. You have the past, which can't be, re, can't be relived. And you have the future, which is completely uncertain. We're going to skip this taking refuge part, because we did a fair amount about it. Uh, I want to say a few words about joining with others as a, uh, a key way that Rick um, brought up earlier. Oh, the mic. Thank you. Joining, joining with others is a key way to experience uh, a release of self. Uh, for quite some time, I had a teacher called uh, Adi Da or um, Da Free John. He's gone by many names over the years. It says Franklin Jones on his birth certificate. But anyway, um, very profound teacher. Uh, and his uh, mantra meditation, his inquiry meditation, was avoiding relationship. His basic idea was that the self is this kind of contraction away from relatedness with other beings and ultimately um, a contraction away from uh, identification with the divine ground. Right? Avoiding relationship? Question mark. Uh, so the um, inversion of that, of course, is a sense, as Rick brought up earlier, of really being one with others and what facilitates that. Uh, so a couple of things here. 
first, we've talked a lot already about how empathy uh, and cooperation are actually very, very deep in our nature. And what's interesting is how much they're driven by frontal lobe uh, categorizations. We will work very hard to cooperate with uh, uh, and be altruistic toward us and walk right by someone in the street who's starving to death if they are them. You know, we will um, happily dive into the river to save the children of us and we will enslave and send away from their parents in Alabama 150 years ago the children of them. So it's just that send, uh, send the mothers in San Jose to Mexico and leave the children there, which we have done in the last year. Yeah, that's another form of them. So it's quite deep in us. It's quite deep in us. Um, so, you know, notwithstanding the great capacity for empathy and cooperation, it, we, we think it's very important to be aware of the tendencies, which are often threat-driven, to um, basically create a them. Uh, distinct from an us. So anyway, and by being aware of that, that's a great way to keep supporting connection among us. Another one is human intimacy and presence, noticing often the sense of fear that arises as we relax into relatedness and doing little experiments of relaxing that fear, relaxing those defenses, relaxing that selfing and seeing how it goes. Usually it goes well and then taking in the rewards of it going well, so one is more willing to enter into relatedness increasingly in the future. Very much of the key to life is how to encourage ourselves to do the right thing, you know, right in the wisest sense of that word. And how do we encourage ourselves to do the right thing, which is not necessarily what we want to do or part of us wants to do today. A great way to do that is to help ourselves really internalize the rewards of doing the right thing over time. You know, help that brain build structure so increasingly it's inclined toward what brings it carrots. The brain's very simple. It wants carrots. It wants it wants to approach carrots and avoid sticks. So by giving it a taste of those sweet carrots and really focusing on that, when you know you do the thing you want to reward and incline your mind toward increasingly, really helps train the brain to go in the direction of those carrots, including (coughs) intimacy and relatedness. Uh, the last thing I'll just say here, actually next to last thing, is this sense of um, relaxing into the awareness that's universal. There's awareness here. There's awareness there. It's not particularly um, identified as a particular person here or there. And there's a sense of connection. Awareness here, awareness there. You know, the being behind the words here the being behind the eyes there. That's a very cool way to just kind of hang out with other people is to kind of relax into the awareness here behind the words and the personality and sense into the being over there behind you know the, the, the latticework of their personality, including parts that are aggravating to you right now. And then last, uh, virtue. Sila, um, there's a quote. I think we're going to do this next one. Yep. Whoops, yep, very good. This is from Tenzin Palmo, an English woman who you got to respect, spent 12 years in a cave in Tibet, came out and went, spent 12 more years on retreat. So anyone who does that, I'm going to listen to and I'm going to read her book, Reflections on a Mountain Lake, fantastic book. Anyway, she really talks here about how 
virtue is important uh, for the cultivation of wisdom. And how sila, in other words, how restraining the harm of other people in our world is really a foundation of forming that joining with others that supports the slow dissolution of self, the slow relaxing and releasing of self. Uh, it's, it's the part that tends to get skipped over, especially when Buddhism came to the West. People wanted the Dharma. They kind of went past Sangha and the Sila part of the practice, the virtue part of practice. Uh, that's very important, though. Sila is very important. And um, one key there is what I call unilateral virtue, where you maintain your own code, including appropriate boundaries, but you maintain your own code in spite of what the other person does. And you orient yourself on how you can be personally the best possible partner uh, you can be with the steepest learning curve possible, whatever they do. You obviously have wishes for how they act. You have communications to them. There's healthy assertiveness. There are healthy boundaries. But fundamentally, very quickly, there's a focus on my own learning curve, my own virtue in this relationship. So any comments or questions about these various methods? And then Rick will take us way into the deep end of the pool. <laughs> In this meditation we call the matrix meditation. We could call it the grout meditation. You know, Rick's got this really great meditation. Okay. First you and then you, right? Okay, great. Can you briefly mention about the body being better in the world? Briefly? Yeah, um, how to get a sense of the body embedded in the world. Um, well, there are different ways to do it, and kind of I'll do this quickly. One way is when you're eating. Pay attention to the food. You know, think about, wow, where'd that carrot come from? Speaking of carrots, or that, that animals especially, you know, where'd that egg come from? Where'd that steak come from? And then get back, then get a sense of that actual real animal, the conditions that led that animal to arise or that bread, you know, the wheat that was grown, the, the sunlight that had to land, the water, uh, the farmers involved in that. Further back, the human domestication of, of plants to eat, going all the way back. For me, at least, all that is embedded in the slice of bread on your plate that then goes into your body. So for me, at least, that's a way to sense it. So connectedness is another way of saying Yeah, yeah, that's right. And there are, diff- there are all kinds of ways. It's interesting how many meditations the Buddha had along this line. Like in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, a lot of them are about the aggregates, uh, the parts of the body, uh, both as they arise and then as they disperse. Uh, okay, other, Yeah. I'm aware that there's quite a few psychologists and therapists in the audience here, so I'm going to uh, name the elephant here. Um, in in psychology and Feeling? especially in in therapy in psychotherapy, the almost like the mantra is to say to use the word I. No, I. You must say I feel angry. I, and um, if if I were to, uh, I had been saying, for example, 
anger arises instead. And then I was immediately corrected. No, no, no. Say, I feel angry. Don't say anger, right? You're objectifying the feeling. Okay. So, of course, um, I'm sure many, some of you may have experienced that. And, of course, being a Buddhist, that's totally go against my grain. Uh, and I have thought of just doing it against the mainstream psychology, meaning not encouraging uh, my future client to say I, but instead asking them to say anger arises. Uh, I just want to know <laughs> whether or not you support that my line of, th- not my, but this line of thinking, or um, what would you feel about what, what I just said? I mean, basically what I'm saying is that what you're saying, what we are saying here is totally against the mainstream psychology thinking and prevalent in the psychotherapy in the United States. Well, that's a great question. Um, that's why I can say it as a neurologist. I don't have to do that. <laughs> well, first, um, let's see. Uh, a lot of that focus on the use of I, it arose especially a lot through Gestalt and Fritz Perls and all, who is kind of confronting people who are very heady, uh, who would talk about, um, you know, there's, there's some anger here. And uh, Perls and others would really try to get people to, to, to own it, you know. And, okay, so it's a raft, right? Time and a place. On the other hand, these days, it's very interesting, the non-dual, the whole non-dual stream, Adyashanti. Uh, a lot of the non-dual folks, Rick and I presented at a, a non-dual uh, wisdom and psychotherapy <coughs> conference at CIS a year ago, and they do an annual one. There's another one this year. Those folks really move away in their language from the language of I, and they really move toward a, a language of, you know, just what's there. Uh, I just think it has to do with with what's useful for the person at the time. And um, what's useful, I find, is, uh, is words like here, really. You know, there is, there is anger here, or there is hope here. Um, and, I, you know, I, I'm not a purist myself about this. I think if you think about it, like, I love you, lambs in a way that's really different than there is love arising here. <laughs> right? Right? Or I am so sorry. I really messed up. I am so sorry. That lands really differently, doesn't it? Then there is some remorse arising in awareness. <laughs> so again, skillful means. Skillful means. Okay. Some of that is a little bit dependent on language because Polly has has no uh, no pronouns. It's gerund, selfing, being, and so there really isn't a whole lot of of the of the kind of very pronounced pronoun based you know single unit kinds of conversations. You know, that you can have when you can talk about I, me, you, he, they, it. You know, so that, that's, that's another piece that sort of infuses this philosophy as it comes forward. I'm not sure that if the, if the language had been based differently, that we would have the same kinds of discussions coming forward in the Buddhist doctrine. 
So that you, you know, you basically step out of the way of the arrow. The Buddhist frame for this is the, is the first dart, second dart simile. The idea that the injury of the first dart is unavoidable. Somebody said something. But the injury of the second dart of, oh my gosh, you know, look at this, ow. And then magnifying it, amplifying it, rerunning the tape. That, that that amplifies the injury. And actually, from the standpoint of neuroscience, That's sort of a PTSD phenomenon. That's how you get to PTSD. That's how you get to the activation of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access and you wind up with hippocampi that are three quarters the size that you started with because of continued cortisol injury to the brain through repetitive, repetitive injury. So it's, it, it, it actually, from the standpoint of trying to back away from a narcissistic injury and say, not me, not mine, there's actual survival value there. Um, it's a it's a great question because it really gets at the paradox of um, around healthy parenting. So uh, I'm going to try to do this in a really summary way. Uh, normal um, child development, infancy, toddlerhood, preschoolers, really requires um, a skillful attunement and empathic responsiveness in a caregiving environment, and That um, it's interesting. It's interesting to imagine how that could possibly be done in some, in, like imagine a society of arahants, you know, 10,000 years from now or whatever. Just how it's sci-fi. Just imagine that everybody, everybody's a stream enterer minimally, and they and they're having kids. And how do they raise kids with a human DNA essentially, uh, with uh, who arose in an and a need uh, as primates and mammals to really attach and to feel important you know, to their caregiver and to have caregivers for whom they were important, how to do all that without uh, building up the conditions that would lead to selfing, which would lead to suffering. You know? It's hard to imagine it, but you can imagine some of that. I mean, lovingness is present, but again, man, there's something about I love you that's just got it rather than lovingness is present. Lovingness is present is like, to me, french fries with no ketchup. Or something. It's just bleh, blind, you know? Okay. But, yeah, and so in a healthy way, there's this attunement and narcissistic supplies. Like, you're the best kid in the world. You know, I love you so much. That's really important. And when people don't get an appropriate amount of narcissistic supplies in a healthy sense, which depend on their temperament, some kids need more than others because of temperamental variability. Some kids are more sensitive and reactive, and also some kids, sometimes the same kids, are more socially attuned. So they really notice what's going on. So children will really vary. But let's suppose for that child, so you know, one child gets an optimal amount of narcissistic supplies, that child internalizes those supplies and then has fewer cravings for those supplies in adulthood. The other child, though, doesn't get enough, has a hole in his heart, speaking personally, and then goes through life looking for ways to fill it. Right? I think in that case, 
it's um, it's healthy and uh, kind to the organism that's got your name tag to go out in the world and look for good narcissistic supplies and fill that hole in your heart, but not out of um, like the Japanese food that's made of plastic. It tastes great, but it goes through you and you, you need to keep replenishing that, but actually so that it sticks to your ribs and then use methods that are neurologically wise and informed where you really have that positive experience be, be prominent and lasting in your, in your awareness so those neurons really fire a lot and therefore they wire a lot. And that's the whole thing about um, taking the good. And this, this piece uh, I wrote called uh, Seven Facts About the Brain That Incline the Mind to Joy, that's about taking in the good. And so um, now at the end of that, at the end of healthy childhood, let's say, or healthy reparative process, now that there is this healthy sense of self and, you know, let's say the hardwired need inside the organism for uh, self-worth, when that's satisfied, drop the raft. Drop the raft and move on, you know, and don't get caught up in painting the raft. <laughs> and then another thing, polish yeah, polish that raft. Um, it is so amazing how often the suffering in an upset diminishes when you ask yourself, essentially, you know, how much self needs to really be here? Or what would happen if I didn't take this so personally, if it wasn't so much about me? Or if self didn't matter so much, you know, and very often, wow, very fast, you know, the suffering, the upset diminishes pretty quickly. Um, I think it's, I'll say one more opining, shut up, is that a kindness toward other people? You know, a lot of times other people may seem sort of stoic and self-sufficient. Wow, they're... There are, to me, in the 9 and 10 in the population who didn't get a really optimal child-rearing. And uh, it's a ballpark number, 1 in 9 and 10. Well, a very kind thing is to recognize them in a kind way, to be affirming, to be recognizing, to be appreciating, and to deliver that for them. You know, It's a kindness to other people. And observe your own tendencies around people who want that from you. Is there a tendency to recoil? Because maybe it's a bid for too much closeness or maybe because it stimulates your own old pain related to your own longings for attunement and validation and prizing. Um, Something to think about. And then with your friends and lovers, it's good. It's okay. I think if people are sophisticated at all to say, okay, now take that in. You know, so you're less needy in the future. <laughs> okay. Take that in as I take it back. There's no way. Let's go Matrix. Let's go Matrix. It's like from the movie, The Matrix. Right? Okay. We've done a number of meditations today that were, in a sense, top-down. And a lot of talking, you know, brain to brain here. Um, What I would like to do with this is to do an exercise with you that hopefully you can take to the cushion tomorrow morning. It's very simple. But actually show you and have a way to contact the nature of the the compounded nature of your experience. 
So I want you to take up your seat. Let yourself relax. Bring yourself into the body. Bring your awareness to the breath. And let your eyes gently close. Being with the breath. Gaining energy with each each inhalation. And a deeper sense of peace and quiet and relaxation with each exhalation. And as you sit there in the breath, with your eyes gently closed, let your awareness move to sound. Sounds from outside the room. Sounds from inside the room. Sounds from outside your body. Sounds from inside your body. Not attaching to any sound, letting it arise, fill your ear, and pass away. No story. No opinion. In the sound, there is only the sound. And between the sounds, notice the silence.
And as you pay attention to the silence, see if you can notice that that silence is not truly silent. There is a signal there. Perhaps a hum. Perhaps a high-pitched tone. Sometimes wavering, but mostly constant. All the other sounds are painted on it. And when they vanish, it remains. be with that sound of silence, letting all the other sounds come and go. And perhaps for you it'll be true that being with that sound of silence, there'll be no need to label all the other sounds unless it's necessary. So they can be dropped.
And now let go of hearing. And bring your attention to what your eyes are seeing on the backside of your eyelids. Leave your eyelids closed. And notice there's probably a reddish quality to the light. Perhaps there are other colors, blue and violet, purple, green. Perhaps little speckles and flashes of light, one place or another. Look past all that. And see if for you, you can see a shimmer in the background. A shimmery, trembling quality to the light. a shimmer on which all of the other visual signals are painted. An empty, shivering canvas. Everything else is painted on it. And 
And so for a few minutes, let yourself be with that light of darkness. And now letting go of vision. See if you can get a sense of the energy of the body sitting there. What is that background resonance of this body sitting? Not any one sensation. the resonance on which those sensations ride. Sensations of the skin, muscles, joints, internal sensations, intestines, bladder, heart, lung, sensations of the blood vessels. All those sensations like sound 
and like sight. Coming in on a frequency. Just be with that frequency, letting all those sensations come and go. Now letting go of body, let yourself take a deep breath of relaxation and settle into a quiet, quiet space. Just let yourself see if you can pick up the resonant background frequency of mind. Different than vision, different than sound, different than body, but there.
This is the matrix of your experience. This is the grout in which the mosaic of each moment of your life is placed. And all you have to do is to sit still and open up and know. And so may we be safe from inner and outer danger. And so may our minds be calm and clear. So may our hearts be peaceful and loving. May we be happy. May we be healthy. May we awaken and be free. And may we know love. May we have joy. May we experience wonder. And may we be wisdom in this life, just as it is. May the merit of our practice today and all the days to come be to the benefit of all beings in all realms. May it be so. Questions, comments? A little background on that. I didn't do it before we went in. That's based on a meditation from Ajahn Sumedho. Um, Western uh, Ajahn Chah trained monk uh, who heads the <coughs> Theravadan community in England. And uh, he talked about the sound of silence. And when he taught that to me uh, on a on a retreat, I realized that it went into all the other sensory realms, including the one of mind. Um, this is bottom-up realization of the compounded nature of your experience. That everything comes out of that. That 
the sound of silence is the, in my view, the idle rate, the, the idling rate for the neurons in your cochlea that subsume the function of hearing. That's what it is when it goes up through the brainstem to the cortex and you can dial into it. That visual shimmer is the oscillating rate of the retina, the lateral geniculate, and the occipital lobe. That's what everything's painted on. Everything that you're looking at right now is painted on that shimmer. Same thing is true for uh, your body, all the different kinds of sensations, smell, taste, and mind. And I just open that up to you as a method of exploring and watching just on the cushion any time that you want. That this total thing is a construction. You can watch the construction happen. In sound, for example, tuning in, watching the aggravating sound of the horn honking outside come in and go away. And that sound still remains. Isn't that cool? Uh, <clears throat> same thing's true for everything that you see. Um, gives me, you know, in, in doing that, it, for me, it gave me a tremendous amount of faith in the constructed nature of experience and the fact that not only is it constructed, is to some extent choosable. That what I choose to make out of those sounds, what I choose to make out of those visions, those sensations, or even those thoughts or feelings, is what I, in wise view, choose it to be. A tremendous amount of faith, I think, in that. I don't know where the microphone went. Could you say something about what part it is of us that hears when we're hearing audible words, but they're not being transmitted in an audible manner in terms of normal science? In terms of listening to me when I'm talking? Okay. In terms of there being a person speaking, but we hear or, um, oh boy, this could get me in trouble maybe. Mm. But um, when we hear something in our head, um, but there has not been a speaker identifiable in the world. Okay. Thank you. Um, this is true for every processing cortex. It's true for vision. Uh, it's true for hearing. It's even true for, for body awareness. The cortex is trying to make sense out of things that are coming up. Uh, and that includes both sensations that are coming in from the outside, and it also includes things that come up in the sense of recalling and memory. Um, or recalling as in there's a thought that needs expression and we're looking for the words to express that thought. That shows up in the cortex and the piece of cortex that's responsible for language and that's both sides of the temporal lobes. That piece of cortex will then take that and paint in 
the sound. So it'll paint in a voice speaking the words that the brain at that moment seems to need to be, to be spoken or to be heard. We know from um, various syndromes where the occipital cortex is cut off from the retina, strokes of various kinds of things, people will see things in an area in which they are physiologically blind, cortical blindness. Um, there's a, a syndrome called peduncular hallucinosis where right at, the, right at the top of the brain stem a stroke in that region will interrupt the, the input back to the occipital lobes and in the central field of vision people will see little green men or funny faces and so they will see things that they know not to be true but that are just real to, the, to them as you sitting there are real to me so the cortex will want to paint in things to represent signals it's having. The interesting thing is that there are, there are places in the brain that will identify that as real, as in I do see that, but not real, as in it can't be there. And the difference, interestingly, in terms of what we would call pathological hallucinations and other hallucinations is whether or not there's another sense that they become relevant to self. Psychotic hallucinations tend to be self-relevant. We tend to try to act on them. There's something in the circuitry in individuals like that, probably having to do with some of their dopamine frontal lobe circuits, because that's the, the system that seems to be misactivated, that starts to attribute that to self and, and calls for action on the basis of something. Whereas people who don't have that psychotic flavor will say, okay, I am hearing my grandmother speak to me about something I should be doing right now. Or in my case, in this moment, I'm hearing Rick Hansen tell me I should give a shorter answer. This is your <laughs> So, do you see what I'm talking about? This electrical stuff that's happening on the cortex, which includes... Strange and wonderful things like out-of-body experiences from stimulating the angular gyrus right back here at the junction of the parietal and the temporal lobes. By stimulating the cortex at that point, you can actually have somebody have the experience of being above their body looking down. And that that can be actually done uh, and has been done and been solid papers published on that. And in that... Yeah, you're on. And in that case... How is it that the visual perspective is accurate in a scientific artistic sense? Don't know. What do you mean by the word accurate? Um, it is as if in an out-of-body experience that the person were up in the corner, right. the number of feet high, perspectively right. accurate. It's not a wooey... Well, it means, that, it means to me that outside of the... Um, and the transcendental implications of that, which I actually don't want to go into because I don't have evidence, it means that the areas of the brain that are responsible for giving perspective to vision are accurately employed by the brain creating that electrical signal. If I am, th yeah, if I am there, if I'm up there, then I should be seeing this. The brain will paint that in. The brain paints in things all the time. If you close your eye, 
you, there's a blind spot over here which you do not see. Your brain will paint in a covering so you don't see the hole in your vision. It's actually there. And, you know, we've all played with that. Uh, the brain will paint in all kinds of visual hallucinations. Ramachandran's book on phantoms in the brain takes you through a number of these where, you, where our, our cortex will, will misattribute or put all kinds of different things in there. You know, does that necessarily mean that out-of-body experiences are due to temporal lobe electrical stimulation or somebody actually has a consciousness that's sitting five feet above them? I don't know. Those circumstances, I think, you know, there are other, th- other kinds of evidence that say in some of those experiences things were said or done and people were aware of things that they could not necessarily be. I think the jury for me is still out. I'll make this the last one, then we'll close. Yes. I am generally, my experience of my life, all the way in this pursuit, all the way My experience of my body-mind is generally one of discomfort or unhappiness. And... Um, so even though I want to experience emptiness very badly, part of me feels, it doesn't feel, it kind of isn't, fades in the background to my, my experiences in my body. My body is what I'm experiencing. So it's like the emptiness. That's all fine and good, but it almost seems like an avoidance of what I'm embodying, what I'm really experiencing. The point of this meditation was not to take you away from what is true. Living in, in, living in your body with your experience has a truth to the organism that needs to be recognized and, and honored. But it, the, the point was to say that that sensation arises on top of a substrate and that you can look beyond the sound to the substrate on which sound is, occurs. It's a little bit like looking to the basic chords in a, in, a, in a symphony. And you can look beyond whatever the content of experience is to just the ground of that experience, what that, gra- what that experience is happening. And that's in that you can look beyond the body to the electrical signals, essentially, that represent the body to the brain. And that the brain's experience is what it is, but it is painted on a substrate. In a sense, the aim of the, of the meditation is to say, okay, the substrate exists and the sensations exist, so I have the first event arising, discomfort. And then I have the reaction to that Reaction. We were talking about it in the equanimity slide. You know, this arises, what do I do with it? Well, it's arising on the substrate. If I take refuge in the substrate, that that's there, and that this is arising, then I can work with that as just the content of experience. But underneath that is a refuge in, 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 in the ground, in the emptiness of, of that sensory intent. 
I feel like this is sort of like uh, Survivor, you know, is those who are left on the island at <laughs> <and> 507. <laughs> anyway, first we beg your indulgence that we went over a smidge. Um, quick comment that I think very often what the brain does is it paints self on the stream of experience. So think of that as something that gets painted in. Uh, Anyway, we're very grateful that you hung in here with us. We really appreciate this. This is the thorniest subject, you know, really that people tend to go after uh, self and selfing. And the attentiveness and support was really felt, I reckon, by me. Uh, great questions. Yeah. Really great questions. So may the benefits of all this be for all beings truly in this bumpy world, this world of wonders, and may you yourself really enjoy the freedom that the Buddha talks about, you know, in terms of quenching your own fires of selfing and find your own perfect balance of, you know, paddling your raft uh, while also abandoning it once it gets you to the other side. So thank you very much.